So today and next Sunday are the last two weeks in our teaching series where we're going through the book of James. Uh, The book of James, as you know, if you've been here uh, very much this summer, if you've been paying attention, is that it is an incredibly challenging book. It's really, it is. It is, it like, seriously, it's really hard. Um, It's one of those that like a couple times going through it, I'm like, who chose to do this? I did, that's right. So, um, So when I came yeah, it, changes, it challenges how we think about things, it challenges what we think is right, it challenges how we live and the assumptions we make about, oh, well, this is good and this is the Christian thing to do. I mean, it just, it, it messes with you at many levels. The good news is that at the very end, these last two weeks, James makes this little turn towards encouragement and optimism and hope, okay, at the end of chapter five. Uh, in fact, it's such a noticeable difference that um, John, Wasson, and Jill and I were talking this week, and they're like, so wait a minute, you leave the country, and for three weeks we get judgment and guilt and woe to the wealthy, and you come back, and this is what you get. I'm like, it just happened to fall that way. You know, it's, it's total coincidence. But, um, but the passage today is an encouraging word, but it's an encouraging word to all of us in the midst of some really hard things we're going through. Okay, And so we're going to read from James 5, starting with verse 7, going through verse 12. This is what it says. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my beloved, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us all through your word this day and always, that we may hear and receive what it is you want to say to us and how you want to guide and shape and change us. us, Give us open hearts and minds this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So James is talking here about suffering. He's talking here about pain. He's talking here about difficulty. And what he describes in this is, uh, is different than how we sometimes think about it. Okay? What he's doing here is he's not saying that some of you might experience this. He's not saying that this might happen someday to you. He's talking about the fact that we live in a world and that we live lives where we experience pain and suffering. And as Jerry just prayed about, some of us might be going through some really hard stuff right now. All of us have suffering and scars, things in our lives that are really difficult. Now what James doesn't do in this passage, and what the biblical witness rarely does, is it rarely goes to the place in suffering that you and I normally go. Where you and I normally go, especially here in the United States, is we run to the question of why. That's one of the first things we do. Why is this happening? Why would this be happening to me? Why did this diagnosis come down? Why did someone treat me this way? Why would this thing happen? Why is there an earthquake in Nepal? Why does all, you know, there's got to be a reason. 
And I think one of the reasons we run to that is in our country and in our culture, there are many of us who kind of see suffering and pain as the exception rather than the norm. So we're sort of shocked by it when it happens. Where Daphne and Elizabeth were in Cuba, if you went there and said suffering's a part of life, many of them would be going, yeah. It's not like it shocks you when something happens. It's a part of life. We run, they, and they probably, probably don't run to why as quickly as we do in this. And James here doesn't run to why as well. Most of the time, if you have that feeling, and you might have it today, it's like, I want to know why this is happening. The best answer we can give is, I don't know. That's, that's the, like the theologically most uh, astute phrase you can say when someone says you, why is this happening? The reality is we don't know. I don't know a lot of the time. The closest the Bible gets to talking about really why suffering exists, why you and I experience pain and hardship and difficulty, is that we are broken people living in a broken world. And I want to take a second to talk about this because I had some really interesting conversations with some folks earlier in the summer when I used that phrase one time. We are broken people living in a broken world. What does that mean? Does that mean we say that the world's bad? Does that mean we're kind of looking at Austin going like, you're really bad and we're kind of lobbing hand grenades at you because we're the righteous of Jesus and you know the world's bad and broken and you guys are, no, it's not what we're saying. We want to be really clear about that. Because the church at times in its history has done that. It's erected big walls around itself and wagged the finger of righteousness at the world. And that is not the posture that we want to have. That is not what we say when we say that we're broken people living in a broken world. It's a confessional statement. I'm broken. Let's start there. It's not that out there. I am, right? And James is, is operating under kind of an understanding that the reason they're suffering in the world is that it's broken. It's not how it's meant to be. This is becoming an increasingly unpopular sentiment. And so I want to be really clear that we're not saying that means that the world's just really bad. But I also believe that as Christians, you and I need to hold on to the fact that we can't be Pollyanna-ish about the world. Because the increasing popular sentiment is people are inherently good, the world's inherently good, and if we just give it a big enough hug, everything will be okay. And all of human history tells you you're wrong, if that's the statement you want to make. Take, for example, the fact that so much of what's wonderful and part of why we've been able to avoid certain kinds of suffering that you might see in other countries is because at the founding of our country, we understood that all people are broken living in a broken world. We designed our systems around that. I'm going to give you a quick bit of evidence here because I really want us to be operating from the same perspective of there is brokenness in our hearts and brokenness in the world. And we have to accept that as a given. Civics basic civics in government, right? There are three branches of government, right? There is the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, right? That's how we design it. The judicial branch are the courts. The legislative branch is the Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. And then the third branch is the executive branch, and that's at the national level, the president, or at the state level, the governor. Our whole system of government is built around the brokenness of people, why do we have three branches of government? Why do we have it? We have it because the people who founded our country were smart enough to go, if you put too much power in one person's hands, they'll abuse it. They will. It's not that they might. It's not might that, oh, someday a really bad person will come in and might abuse it. They will abuse it. They will. Because we're broken people living in a broken world. 
And so we design this so that there are checks and balances all the time, that the different groups acting out of their own self-interest are going to check the other group to not get too far ahead. And yes, it produces at times a maddeningly inefficient government process, a maddeningly inefficient government process, and some of that we need to try to correct. But some of it's there by design. Because as much as we looked at George Washington and people did this at the founding of our country, and they're like, no, 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 you're really wonderful. You take lots and lots of power. He was smart enough and self-aware enough to go, nope, because I will abuse it. We are broken people living in a broken world. I'm a part of that. I know, and I've shared this with you before, I know that the Bible says in my marriage that I'm supposed to love and serve my wife above and beyond anything else. I know it says that. I just lots of times don't. Yeah. That's, that's true. That's true. I, I this afternoon, I this afternoon want to watch the PGA Championship. I want to see if Jordan Spieth wins. I have two children who don't care less if Jordan Spieth wins. I know what I should do, but I don't want to. We are broken people living in a broken world, and we are naive if we wander away from that in the understanding of everybody's just Jim Dandy. It's not true. It's not true. James is saying, And the biblical witness gives an idea that the reason suffering exists in this world is because there is a brokenness in creation. That creation does not fully function exactly the way that God intended it to, and neither do we. We have to accept that from the beginning and understand then that suffering that happens is many times just the best we can say a product of a broken world. I believe cancer is that. I believe depression and anxiety is that. I believe addiction comes from that. I believe many of the things that you and I struggle with are the product of being broken people living in a broken world. James isn't focused on the why. But what he is focused on is incredibly important and incredibly powerful and all of us today need to hear it and receive it because it's an important message for you. And what he does say in the midst of suffering, while not saying why it happened to you or why it happened to us, is he says that you need to be patient and wait because God will not allow suffering to be the end of your story. He says that we are to be patient and wait the way that a farmer waits for crops to grow, that the farmer prepares the soil and places seeds in the ground, and even though for a long time that farmer doesn't see anything coming up, it's not that nothing's happening. It's that it's while that seed is covered up that the most miraculous things of life are taking place, that cells are dividing, that roots are shooting out, that that buds are beginning to form, and that when it comes out of the ground, what we see is just the final product of a beautiful, beautiful process, that we need to have an expectant waiting for how God is going to meet us in our suffering and change and transform it and redeem it in all different kinds of ways. James is echoing a promise that is true throughout Scripture saying no matter who you are and no matter what it is that you are going through, suffering and pain will not be the end of your story. 
This is as old as the Scriptures. In the beginning of Genesis, we see the story of Joseph, for example, that Joseph is one who is envied by his brothers and he is sold into slavery in Egypt by his own family, by the people that were supposed to, to protect him and raise him. And they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And while he is in slavery in Egypt, he is falsely accused of a crime. He has no trial. He's given no voice to speak up. He has no power to do anything about this false accusation. And he is cast into an Egyptian cell, into an Egyptian dungeon with no hope of getting out. That leaves scars. He is there for years, suffering and probably feeling abandoned and alone. But what we see in the scriptures is that that also is not the end of his story. But that God, through the interpretation of dreams, raises him up, brings him out of prison to the point where at the end of his life, he is second only to Pharaoh in standing in the eyes of the Egyptians. Did that mean that the suffering didn't matter? No, it mattered unbelievably. It was incredibly hard to go through, but it wasn't the end of his story. Or take, for example, in the book of Exodus, when the people of God have been crying out in slavery for 500 years in Egypt and God delivers them, and yet when they deliver them, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Can you imagine that? 40 years, day after day, week after week, month after month, of just every day wandering, wondering where you're going. And yet while that suffering was real, and it was real for the people, and it changed them forever, there came a day when they crossed over the Jordan River into a land flowing with milk and honey. They entered into the promised land that their suffering was real, and yet that was not the end of their story. But God began a beautiful new chapter for them, and we see it most importantly in the cross and in Jesus. That God is not, and this is so important, that God is not some God looking down on you today in heaven and the difficulty of what you're going through, going, I know it must be hard. But that God is a God who has experienced pain, who has experienced suffering, who has experienced loss, who has experienced torture and abandonment and lies spread about you to the point that it broke his body and he died on a cross. God is not exempt from and is no stranger to the suffering of what a broken world can throw at you. But guess what? That was not the end of the story. That on the third day as the disciples gathered at the foot of that tomb, to prepare the body for long-term burial, it was not there that he rose again to show us that love triumphs over hate and that life triumphs over death. Always, all the time. It's not that we are spared from suffering, but it is the promise, the powerful acknowledgement that James is reminding us all of is that your suffering and mine will be transformed, will be redeemed, will be met by God and overpowered by the Lord of Angel Armies. And it's not just an academic theory. And it's not just a story that happens to people in the Bible. It's a promise that James is making to all of us, reminding us of God's promise to us all that we need to hear today and hold on today. As I said, I've been able the last few weeks to travel took study leave time and took some vacation time. And it's a wonderful time uh, for me and for our family to reflect. We don't do that very well anymore, do we? You and I don't do that. We're too plugged in. We're too technologically savvy. We're always looking for the next 
fix, for the next thing that's going to show us what to do, for the next activity to be involved with. But I hope that you've taken some time this summer to reflect, to look back on the last year, to look back on the last few years, to think about where has God been active? What have you seen? What prayers have you prayed? How has God moved in that? Reflection and thinking backwards is something that we all need to do. And I got to do that this past summer. I got to do that. Think over the year. Think over the year for us as a congregation. Think over what we've seen God do. Think over where we're going to go and pray over about where we need to head in the days to come. But I've also been able to do that personally. And without a doubt, this year has been an amazing year for us personally, for the Daniel family, for me. It's been a wonderful, wonderful year. But that does not mean that it has been a year exempt from pain. It has not been a year exempt from suffering. As many of you know, I lost this last year someone who is very, very close to me, one of my best friends and mentors, someone who, as I've reflected, has probably impacted my life more as an adult than anyone outside of my wife, Steve Hayner. I shared with you a number of times about Steve's journey after we moved out here. I got through the first two services, totally fine. that when we came out here, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And there was nothing the doctors could do. It was hard to be a thousand miles away from someone you love walking through that. He, um, He was somebody who it shouldn't have happened to. He was in his early 60s. He was the president of a seminary. He traveled around the world on boards. He was on, in the gym five days a week running and weightlifting. He watched in an obnoxiously critical way everything that he ate and everything that went into his body. Um, meals with him were incredibly annoying. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden, he gets this diagnosis of terminal cancer, and there's nothing that can be done. As he deteriorated over the nine months from his diagnosis until he died in January, and I've shared with you some about the journey of this. I've not talked about this since he died because it feels like it cheapens it a bit, but I want to share with you something about that. One night, Beth and I were at dinner as Steve was in hospice care, and as we were leaving this dinner with some people here at the church, we got a phone call that he had taken a dramatic downturn, and you knew that call was coming. Through a weird series of events, a miraculous series of events, I got the last seat on a flight to Atlanta and arrived at their house just hours before Steve eventually passed away. And I had two times with him, just one-on-one. The first time, we had a number of scripture passages that he won't read. And he seemed remarkably with it for someone who they said only has hours left. He goes, I want you to read these five psalms. I want you to read them in this order. Do not read them chronologically. I would like them read in this order. And I said, okay. He goes, you need to get a pencil and paper. You need to write these down. I want them read in this order. You're like, okay. So I write these like five psalms down in this order, and I wound up reading them. We prayed together. I left the room. Uh, A couple hours later, I went back, and he said, I would like for you to read five more psalms, and I'd like them read in this order. You need to write them down and the first time you read it, you read from the wrong translation of the Bible. And I was like, what? And he goes, I want you to read from this translation, not that translation. And you're going, 
I thought you were dying. Like, why are we? We're, and we got into this like five minute debate about what translation from the Bible best captures the Psalms. And, you know, in the end, he won. And so I went and got a different Bible and came back and read from it in the order that he wanted, in the translation that he wanted. And as I read the last one, I looked at him and tears were flowing down his face. Flowing down his face as he lay in bed. And those are those moments where you can't have the conversations that we normally have, where you can't say, so what do you think of the Longhorns? What do you think of the new coach? Think he's going to be able to... And we can't, you, can't, you can't hide behind those conversations anymore, like we often do. And he said, I'm dying. I said, you are dying. What's going on in your mind and what's going on in your heart? And as he lay in his bed with tears streaming down his face, he said, Thomas, I have never been more aware of the presence of God than I am right now. It is all around this room, and it is the most beautiful thing I have ever experienced. I got to be with his wife Cheryl and his three kids as he passed away a couple of hours later. It was the most unbelievable experience. And by that, I don't mean that it was like God opened a door but shut a window, or God, you know, can take a frown and turn it upside down, or God can, you know, won't give you more than you can handle. It was beyond all those little bumper sticker phrases that we put out to make ourselves feel better that absolutely make no sense. It was about a place where there was chemotherapy and decay and loss and sorrow and pain and hardship. And yet right there in the midst of those sights and those smells and in the, right there in the midst of that loss and that hole that still exists for me and so many others, there was the presence of God in a way that it frightened me to open my eyes because I knew he was right there in the room. And it scared the life out of me in the most wonderful and holy of ways. That James isn't giving us an economic theory. He's not giving us something where he says, oh, you know, it might work this way and here's how theologically this fits. He's making a declaration in the midst of suffering that says no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of suffering or pain that you experience in this life that might bring you to your knees and take your breath away, it will not have the final say. You are not alone. You are not walking through this by yourself. And you will walk through out on the other side. And that is not by your doing. It is the promise of Almighty God to each and every one of us. We end sermons here in a variety of ways. We end sermons with note cards and assignments and reading assignments, and all different kinds of things you're going to do. That's not how we're ending today. We're ending today by just saying there's a promise. It's made to you. Hold on to it. Don't let the things of this world drag you down to the point you can't keep going. God will show up. This is not the end of your story. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we ask that you would encounter us here today, all of us, no matter how we look, no matter what our jobs are, no matter how successful we project, no matter what our social media accounts say our amazing lives look like that make everyone else jealous. We are a people who know pain. We're a people who know suffering. We're a people who know hardship. We wish we were strangers to it, but we're not. Help us not to run from it or hide from it today. Help us not to brush it off and act like it's no big deal. May we hold it before you as the one who knew suffering yourself. And we wait patiently and expectantly for you to change and transform and redeem it. Whisper to us all today that a new chapter will begin. And we give you thanks for this promise that is made to us all. In Jesus' name, amen.